and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. This is episode 56. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. So this week is National Engineers Week. Woo, we got a holiday. Do you know what that is? No. Neither do I. Yeah, we don't get the, <laughs> we don't get the week off either. So yeah, no, I guess I guess it's it's some week where we are supposed to be celebrated in some way, shape, or form. So yay for engineering. Woohoo. Go, even, go even work more, long hours. Yeah, and, go, yeah, actually, this week has been pretty rough in terms of hours-wise. <laughs> so to all the engineers out there, we tip our hats to you. And raise a beer if you're listening to us not at work. Take a drink, Parker. Ooh, that's tasty. Okay, so this is our self-promotion little segment, I guess. Yep. Um, we would love to hear from our listeners. Tell us what you think, your current projects, any topics you would like us to cover, or just say hello, which actually some people do. Yep. Um, you can reach us at Twitter at Macrofab or send us an email at podcast at macrofab.com. Um, so last week, I think it was right after the podcast, I think it was on Friday afternoon or, or Saturday, uh, Scott Vale sent us an email. He says, uh, or he, not says, he writes... Hey guys, my name's Scott. I've listened to every MacFab podcast since episode one, and it's by far the best engineering podcast out. And I listen to all the other ones. And he lists all our uh, quote unquote competitors, I guess. <laughs> um, you guys do a perfect mix of technical information and current events. I wouldn't change a thing. Keep up the good work. P.S. I think it would be a good episode to hear more on Steven's history of working on guitar amps, since I am an uh, I work in the audio gear world as well. So uh, thanks for thanks for writing in, Scott. And we we were putting this here not to just have it be like super self promotion of the podcast. <laughs> really, it's more to answer the question about uh, yeah the PS part. The, yeah, the PS part. No, the first part is very nice. Thank yeah, you thank you, so thank much. you. Yeah, thanks so much. And I'm glad that you really like it. I. We, we, we try to make you like it. Yeah, it's part of our jobs. <laughs> yeah. So, Stephen, what is your history of amplifiers, and how did you get into that kind of stuff? Okay, so I'm going to do my absolute best to not go on forever on this, because I probably could. Uh, so, Maybe first 10 of all, minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, first of all, the reason why I'm even an engineer is because of uh, guitar amps. So, um, I, I have that engineer's curse of having to know how everything works and having to take things apart and the uh dilbert comic that you know they had a dilbert cartoon yeah they have a video called the knack yeah and so it's like little dilbert is like taking apart a radio like inside like a doctor's office and like his mom <laughs> i thought to you were gonna out. say inside the womb no 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 <laughs> he's taking apart a radio and like i think it was actually like a a, a doctor came into the house or something mm. and the 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 mom is like, what is wrong with my son? And the doctor's like, sit down, ma'am. Your son has the knack. <laughs> and she's like, no. <laughs> He's cursed to be an engineer. Cursed to be an engineer for life. <laughs> well, okay. So I guess in some ways we both kind of have that. Yes. Uh, you, you sort of have to be a little messed up in the head to be an engineer. So, uh, so okay. the debate. Back in high school, I was in an like an emo punk rock band kind of thing. Did you have? Did you paint your fingernails? No, no, I you never. Have studs? No, I I did the I did the whole like 
generally tight jeans and like shirts with ironic phrases on them and trucker hats and things like that. It was a bad time. That's a different kind of emo. I'm thinking the emos at my school were what I just described. Okay, well, you see, we called that scene. Regardless, that's 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 way long ago. Uh, but I was in a band and and I was I was the lead guitarist and of course like I lusted after like these big guitar amps out there and I saved up a bunch of money to Marshall get 9000 one. X. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was a Marshall. I wanted a Marshall JCM two thousand, and uh, that even has a longer name than I just said. My, I wanted some help from my parents to get this amp, and they would not let me have it, uh, they, or they wouldn't give me cash. They were like, "You have an amp. You don't need to be louder. You don't need more of this crap." Mom, Dad, you don't understand. Yeah, ex- it was it was almost like that. But here's the thing: I thought I would get the best of my parents uh, because I knew they were suckers for educational crap. So I came back and I said, okay, you won't help me buy one off the shelf, but if I figure out how to make one, will you help fund that project? And they said, sure, you, you make one from the ground up and we'll help you do it. So I spent six months. Build like a kilowatt amp. Yeah. <laughs> I, I spent six months researching. I mean, it was like nonstop. Uh, I, I delved way into and, the world of amps. And this is and this is in the what early 2000s then, right? This is 2004, 2005. Back when the internet was a piece of crap. Yeah, the really it wasn't as as nice as it was today. So searching for these things was you had to do some like legit searching and yeah. digging. It's it, that's actually an interesting thing about the internet is around for some reason around 2006 like when I start searching for like I need to figure out how to do something, yeah, two thousand like anything before two thousand six doesn't really exist in Google search history. Yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, the internet was 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 pretty weird back then. Yeah. So um, uh, the thing was, I had worked on circuits before. I'd actually even built some guitar pedals before, but uh, I didn't know anything about how it worked. I just followed a like a diagram and hoped that it worked. And if it didn't, I was like, well, okay, it's crap now. But I ended up finding an amp that I wanted to build, and it did what I was kind of looking for. It wasn't the big beast of the JCM 2000, but it was that amp that I wanted. And uh, I ended up getting a bill of materials, purchasing it all, and I built so, it. So on, on purchasing it? Yeah. Did, they give you, did your parents give you a budget, or did you just say, I need this amount of money? I... I put in some of my cash, and then I said, hey, I need a little bit of help. You okay. know? So I don't remember how much it was. It really wasn't much. Um, I think I needed like 100 bucks from my folks or something. And where did you get the parts back then? Back then, I believe I got them Amazon from a place. Amazon didn't exist then. <laughs> well, no. Uh, so I had, I, I had actually already ordered stuff from Mauser. Uh, so I got okay. some stuff from Mauser, and I got some other stuff from a place called Mojo, uh, Mojo okay. Tone, which they still exist. Um, and they, and they do like all things guitar. Bowser had a web interface. Yeah, they did. Uh, and it was still good back then. It was, <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> We've talked about Bowser being killer. Uh, so yeah, no. So, so I got all the parts in and I, I didn't follow the schematic. I literally just had a picture. I had a piece of paper with a picture on it and it just showed where everything goes. And it had a bunch of different color, uh, wires on it. And it's just, if you hook it up like that picture, then it should work. Lo and behold, I built the entire thing. It took me like two months because uh, I was really careful about it. Uh, turned it on. First time I turned it on, fired up and and went to town. Did you blow your door off the first time you turned it on? 
I was I, I turned it on with a yardstick because <laughs> I was so scared of it. I didn't know what it was gonna do. <laughs> oh man! But no, I turned it on with a yardstick, and I remember playing it and sort of not liking it. it, it, it so it wasn't like uh, Back to the Future. It was like forty knobs turning, and then he strums and. Boom! Blows himself across the. When I graduated high school, you know how you, there's a lot of those people who are like most likely to succeed, and most likely to this or that. I got most likely to build the amp from uh, Back to Back the Future. Future. Yeah. So so I built that amp, and I was like, I love this. It was so much fun. It was amazing. And at that point, I was like, I've got to go learn how to how to do this for legit. So that was the best hundred dollars your parents ever spent. Basically. Well, it turned into $80,000 worth of school. <laughs> so I, the thing is, I thought that I would best them by getting an amp out of, like, you know, playing their yeah. game. And it ended up changing the way I wanted to do things in my life. That's so, cool. Yeah, it worked out. So, so effectively, I went to Texas A&M, and I got my electrical engineering degree because I could build an amp, but I had no clue how it worked. And that bothered me. I had to know why it worked. And uh, A&M taught me zero uh, about how the amp works. Actually, and you have a story about a professor and tubes, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so, so of, of course, like, everything I've learned I, uh, about, about amps other than just, like, you know, general electronics, I, I had to teach myself because nobody knows tube stuff. And when it comes to audio amplification, so much of it is old hat that they don't, don't really teach it. They're like, there's so much information, you can just go learn it yourself. Um, and, and I remember my senior year at college, I told one of my professors, I want to go make tube amps. And she literally laughed in my face, like straight to my face. It was, it was almost comical. And, it, and I was like, oh, it made me, it burned me up. Cause I was like, I'm going to do and it. That, and that's the thing is you actually wanted to go and build physical things, yeah. which they don't teach you at all in college in no, most EE classes. No. Like you do labs and stuff, but they don't like. I took like at, at UT. I took like the only class that we actually built circuit boards in for yeah. undergrads. Yeah, and like undergrads don't know how to build circuit boards. I, I had they don't many classes do where things. where undergrads didn't couldn't hook up a breadboard. I mean, there was there was people failing breadboard at oh, senior man. level um, because they don't. Electronics is is less about like components anymore. Yep. It's so much more, like at A and M. There were so many. There was only really like one track that was when you apply circuit boards. gate voltage, the electrons fill the holes and allow the current to flow through the MOSFETs. <laughs> Everyone writes that down. Yeah, every, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna have to remember this for the exam. <laughs> no, instead of instead of the most important thing is look at the volt gate threshold chart. Figure out the voltage that you're gonna apply to the gate will actually turn on that MOSFET as much as you need. Right, and then go and That's try. That's all to... that freaking matters. Well, but then you go and you try to put those those values into Mauser and find a FET that will work, and there's not one that will work. So you just kind of like that one. That, that one's work. gonna work, and you pick that, and it works. It works, or doesn't. <laughs> That's real engineering. Yeah. Right yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I graduated uh, and went off and got a job doing some stuff that was pretty much signal processing. And amplifier stuff. Um, I worked there for four years until I decided to leave and start my own business doing Craig amplification. Uh, and at Craig Amps, I built amps, I sold amps, I uh, fixed a bunch of amps. I ended up starting a big repair center, um, which I serviced most of the guitar centers in Houston and a handful of other uh, music stores. 
Uh, and I did that for a while until I didn't like doing it anymore, um, which was an interesting turn of events because it was like my lifelong goal to go and like make amps and make this big, big ordeal out well, of it and stuff. And Well, I don't think it was that. It was just you were fixing stuff more than building new stuff. That was yeah. That was one of the big things. Okay, so so I started this this repair shop, and one of the things I pride uh, I took pride in was the fact that nobody else in in Houston was taking in like keyboards or PA's or mixers or things because they were they were just too hard to fix, and I I was really proud of the fact that nothing left my shop not working. Nothing Every, came back twice. Well, well, unless no, the no. person broke it again, Stu- stuff came back because of X, X or Y reason. But but it was it was more like if you brought something to my shop, you were either going to get it fixed or you didn't want it fixed at all. Uh, I could fix anything. That was my my. I told people that, and I did. I fixed every keyboard that came in, every mixer, and I because I, I had an electrical engineering background, I would go down and fix transistor level problems on keyboards, which most people would just. Uh, you need a new five hundred dollar PCB swap, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And and I was I was cheaper, I was faster, and I could fix anything. And it, what ended up happening is I just didn't like the work. After a while, dealing with musicians is great; they're wonderful people, but it's just difficult when it comes to getting paid. Yeah, like the money aspect is is tough. Remember, you don't have to be political on this show. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> no, I love musicians and I deal with them every day and I'm one myself. But uh uh but yeah, no, that 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 just that just sucked the fun out of it. And um so the thing is I still run Craig Amplification. I still have the business, I still have the DBA, uh and I still do a bunch of work with musicians. It's just I don't take in all the work. You can choose. That. Yeah, I pick and choose and I work with musicians who are really like they they know what they're looking for. They're they're willing to invest time and invest some money into getting the tone that they want. And I really work with those guys, and it's fun because it's it's great for me. I get to kind of interact with these guys, and it's not like this hostile environment where it's like, hey, my thing is broken, fix it. You know. Well, it's also it's like you know, you don't have to pay the bills with that anymore either. Right, right, right. And and at the same time, I in the middle of starting my own business i i decided to get married and at that point it was i had the question i was like i could continue doing this and it would be difficult for years or i could do this on the side and go work at a place like macrofab so i made that decision and that was a good decision awesome so that's uh it's there's a lot more to it but that's like the kind of the 10 years and 10 minutes Uh, yeah wow (laughs) actually 12 years. And and here's the thing. That amp that I built back in 2005, the first one I did back in high school, I still have it. It still works. It sits in my shop. I use it all the time. Is it that green one? Yeah, it's the it's, it's the, the 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 Blitzkrieg amp. Yeah, yeah, I had a I the first logo I was in high school here, remember this. Uh but the first logo I had was this big tank rolling over a, a, a hill of like inferior amps. amps. Yeah. <laughs> Things awesome. We actually need a I don't know if I have a picture of that. We got to get a picture for the podcast. I'm, so uh, after the podcast, I'm going over to my shop to work on some amps for some people. I'll, I'll shoot some pictures. Cool. Uh, yeah, so I still have that amp. And guess what? I, it's 12 years old. I've never serviced it. It still works. And at band practice, y'all use that for, or y'all were using it for the bass amp. Yep. And my, my bass player uses that every week. It's it's an 18-watt uh, all-tube amp, and it's meant for guitar. But, man, it sounds killer for bass. 
So that's a little bit of my story. There we go. Someone else write in and ask Parker's story. <laughs> there we go. Um, so that's that's going to take up Steven's segment, basically. <laughs> yeah, there you right um, So I, I, I had, um, I guess it's actually kind of both of us, the resistor resistor. Yeah. Bad news, guys. It doesn't fit in our My 200 pick and place. <laughs> it's actually, it's like four inches too wide yeah. to fit in that machine. So we're going to redo the layout in 0201 resistors, mm-hmm. which will half the overall size, and so it should fit. Yeah. Because it was 042s. So, yeah, which those are small yeah, by small, themselves. By small. Yeah. But there's 40,000 of them on one side. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I took it, and I'm like, I went over to do the programming, and it fit. It would fit in the My 500 Pace Jetter. Easy peasy. Yep. And then... <laughs> Um, and then I went over to my 200, and then I showed the operator, like, hey, because I've actually never programmed the pick-and-place before, this mm-hmm. new one. Mm-hmm. I programmed the my 500 before, but not the 200. And so I went over there, and I'm like, hey, you know, can you show me, give me a quick rundown on how to program a part so I can, you know, get this thing going. And he looked at that and was just like, that's not going to fit. <laughs> so, it's huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna definitely respin that board, get get smaller. Yeah. Um, and then the Jeep radio hack. I so, heard there's some cool stuff. Yeah, so it's actually been working for the past two weeks. My Jeep now, I yep. use it almost every day, and there is a Hackaday article about it. Woo! Yeah, so I got I got hatted. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so there's two places. There's your own personal blog, and then Hackaday wrote about it also. Yes. Um. Yeah, and some pretty good comments. I think there's 18 comments on it right now. Yep. Um, and they're mostly positive, which is unusual for a Hackaday article. <laughs> but, yeah, so there we go. Um, and so I guess on to the RFO section. RFO. So this week on RFO, down and dirty with contact cleaners. Mm-hmm. Um, the TI HDC 1080 temperature humidity sensor. And then, is owning a 3D printer worth it? Question mark. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> All right, so the first one. Down and dirty with contact cleaners. This is an article on Hackaday. Um, and I, I'm using this one because we actually had another uh, listener email in. And it's uh, Emmett uh, wrote in and mentioned that one of his volume knobs on his uh, stereo amplifier was scratchy. Yep. And I'm like, I know the exact person that loves to talk about contact cleaner. <laughs> and there's an article that came out this week. It was like the it's like the, the Venn diagram where like, you know, two different topics and right in the middle is this RFO. Yep. So uh contact cleaners, I've used a whole bunch and there is one that I have found that is nectar of the gods. This stuff is magical. Um it's called neutral N-U-T-R-O-L. And it's by MG Chemical. That's right. MG Chemical doesn't make anything bad. No. The problem not is it's really. expensive. <laughs> you know, uh, what I've found in visiting multiple cities and going to their electronic stores, there's always like this little shelf somewhere where it's the MG Chemical shelf. And and this can would uh, would exist there. Uh, they also make really good their heavy duty flux cleaner. Oh, that stuff is killer. That stuff will like 
eat anything. It'll take the skin off your fingers. <laughs> yeah, and transfer it to the PCB board. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. <laughs> they, yeah, they make they make really good chemicals, the, but they're I, not cheap. No, they're not cheap. They have a really good uh, rosin flux pin too. I can't remember the part number on that. It, it, it's uh, got the little. It looks like a sharpie, right? Yeah, but it's a yeah, but it's a it's a rosin flux pin, which I right. back in the before Macrofab, I used. For uh, doing consoles, uh, console hacking and stuff. Right, because um, you did a bunch of Atari stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, I would use, and that, that was lead solder. And so you'd use rosin. Yep. So, right. Rosin is killer. Yeah, rosin and lead, that's that's the secret sauce of long longevity in electronics. So, so yeah. Uh, okay, so neutral yep. contact cleaner. It's like 17 bucks a can. Uh, so it's not cheap, but it goes a long way. Uh, that'll last you a, a long while. If you do anything with potentiometers, get a can of this stuff. Um, the thing about it is it is both a cleaner. Well, it's like three things. It's a cleaner, it's a restorer, and it's a lubricant. So it actually deposits carbon back on the wipers? I wish. That would be killer. Well, then why is it a restorer then? It just... Or does it just say that on the can? Yeah, it says crap like that. It's a snake oil. The reason why I say that is... You know, most potentiometers uh, have that little like window in it that's that's near the uh, the actual little board where the legs are. Give a spritz of this stuff in there, and then rotate the pot like ten times. Uh, y- you will feel grime coming off of the pot. Like a lot of times, you'll turn a pot and it feels nice. It has a lot of resistance. That's not the pot being like designed to have resistance. That's like grit and grime on the wiper. Because well, old old potentiometers too, they would just put dielectric grease injected in there yeah and which is fine until basically dust and sand gets into the dielectric grease and then it makes a nice like paste yeah just like you know it's just like like, gritty there's like finger slime and there's just like just just goop and and nasty stuff in there uh but you spray this neutral stuff in there give it a couple spins that pot comes back alive uh the thing that uh, I've had so many customers come in and they're like, hey, you know, I've got this vintage amplifier. It was built in 1964 or whatever. And they're like, I think it needs to have all the pots replaced and stuff. Be like, hey, give me a second. I'll spray that stuff in there, clean it up. The thing sounds brand new. All you got to do is clean it. it. There's been very few times that I've actually had to replace a pot because this stuff will just clean it, and that's it. I always have a can of it available. In fact, I had one at, at the fab for a while. Cause actually, no, that can's still there. Yeah, 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 it's on your shelf. And um, uh, it works for keyboard contacts, too. Uh, so most keyboard contacts have a little rubber button underneath it. Uh, just oh, spray a little bit on, um, uh, like, a Q-tip and just wipe the, the, hmm. the tip of it and done. So. I wonder what's in that stuff. And I looked at the it's Hackaday. It's 99% rubbing alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Actually, rubbing alcohol leaves stuff really sticky. Oh. Well, because what? what happens is with rubbing alcohol is it kind of spreads it around. mm and that's about it. You have to kind of, with rubbing alcohol, the clean stuff, you need to put it on there, scrub. And then wipe and it. And then then flood it. And so you wash away the right. the, the impurity. Right. Um, there, there's something important to note here. Never, I don't care what the application, don't ever use WD-40 on a potentiometer. Here's the thing that's that's crazy. You oh, got, yeah, you're talking about the Hackaday article because they actually recommend WD-40. Well, uh, yeah, they, they, rec- they, they talk about deoxit for a while. And deoxit's great, but the thing is it doesn't have the lubricating aspect of this uh, neutral stuff. So it works, but it doesn't make the pot feel nice. 
Uh, if you use WD-40 on a scratchy pot, it'll fix it. And you'll be like, hey, this is great. I guarantee you that pot will be nasty and scratchy in 24 hours. Because WD-40 does the exact same thing. It's water displacement. It just smears the crap around. And at first it works, and then it all dries out, and you just made the problem worse. Yep. Never use WD-40 on a pot or any kind of electrical contact. Yeah, actually, it's, it's WD-40. I never recommend that product to anyone. <laughs> just in I, general? I don't see any – It does. it's it's like the jack-of-all-trades of – something in a can basically there's so much other better things to use like yeah. when you need to lubricate like let's say um door hinges just get silicon spray silicon lubricant spray mm-hmm. and use that instead of wd-40 for actually like making stuff not squeak yeah because that's what pretty much everyone uses wd-40 for well oh, i've used wd-40 on seized bolts Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, well, no, now I use penetrating oil. Yeah. Which works so much better. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't remember the brand of penetrating oil I get. It's it's a, it's an orange can. Does it have the dude with, like, he's flexing on No, that's on Liquid Wrench. Okay. Because um, I, I, that's actually one thing I've used a lot of, of yeah. different kinds. It's penetrating oil? It's penetrating oil. Because um, you have a Jeep. Yeah, because I have a Jeep, <laughs> an old Jeep. <laughs> um, I think it's Aero Creole. Um, I'm actually Googling it right now. Sorry about this. Yeah, I'm, I've used WD for a bunch of stuff, and I think it's still worth having a can of it sitting around. Oh, it's uh, Aero, so it's A-E-R-O. Yeah. Croil, Croil, K-R-O-I-L. Uh-huh. And you know it's good because it has that, like, old-school look on the the label, yeah. So you're like, this has got shit that will give you cancer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's this is it, akin to lead solder. Yeah, it's um, I think it's the because uh, one of the best penetrating fluids I've ever used to get unstuck bolts mm-hmm. is actually ATF fluid, which is red. Yeah, uh, it goes in the automatic transmission fluid or automatic transmission, and then acetone. Hmm. Mix those together, and then just like. Drip it over whatever you need to get rid of. It sounds like you're making a bomb or something. Well, the or, thing is, some kind of weird drug. This stuff is red and smells like a little bit of acetone. So it's like almost that, except it comes in a spray can. Hmm. Um, and that that stuff works awesome. Um, a little bit of that and you know, breaker bar, go town. Get anything loose. Yep. Man, that is a weird tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, next topic. Yeah, next topic. Um, the TI HDC 1080 temperature humidity sensor. So this is another person wrote in and said, I have a good topic for RFO. It, it kind of sounds like if you write in, then we'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So write in. Write in. <laughs> um, this is Steve. Uh, he wrote us uh, wrote us to let us know about this really cool IC. Mm-hmm. Um, what really sets this one apart from other humidity temperature sensors is it does it has a, like an onboard mcu that does all the processing for you so you hmm. just access it over i square c and you get the values back so you don't have to have a analog front end that's like susceptible to like to um heat or or differences in isn't that the point of it <laughs> if it's a temperature sensor well, I'm talking about like I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like drift and precision. Yeah, different. It, yeah. So it's all contained on a die, and so you can get a higher precision basically in measuring this kind of stuff. Have, so, have you ever done an analog 
temperature sensor? Yes. Like the actual circuitry? Yep. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, no, it sucks. Yeah. Uh, I did it for thermistors before. Yeah. Um, you so know, then, the whole resistor bridge, and so you can make the non-linear ability of a thermistor linear-ish. Right, but you have to be really careful about how much current you send through it because you don't want self-heating and all that other crap. Exactly. That sucks. Yeah. So this thing's got a accuracy of plus minus 0.2 Celsius, hmm. which is what? Plus minus 0.8 Fahrenheit, somewhere around there. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, and then plus minus 2% for humidity, which in Houston it would be pegged at 98%. Right. Unless it's raining, then it's 100%. Right. Right. It never. It's never not ninety eight percent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's got a built in heater f- inside of it, um, so that it will actually, when the humidity drops, it will dry itself out, and so you don't get false readings or lag in terms of humidity sensing. No lie, that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. So that's the TI HDC ten eighty. Do you know where you can get it? Is this like a Mauser? It's a Mauser. Thing? Yeah, it's like. Three bucks in singles, something like that. No lie. Is it coming like a uh, like what kind of package is it coming? It's probably knowing these kind of sensors. I didn't look at it. It's probably like a QFN kind of thing. No, it's probably a um, fr a thin fr fr four like substrate with a metal can with a hole in it. Oh yeah, okay. okay I'm gonna I gotcha. guess that's what yeah. it is. Like like a really big crystal. Yes. That kind of look. Yeah. Really. Cool. cool. Yeah. Stuff. No, that's that's awesome. Thanks for thanks for writing that in, Steve. Yep. Last topic. And the last topic is, is owning a 3D printer worth it? This was another Hackaday article that Steve found. Yep. Um, and if you know CAD, yes. That's that's your answer, That's too? my answer. And and, and so, uh, so I was reading through the article because, in general, my feeling is no. Uh, I think 3D printers are super cool. And, and just I would love to have one myself, but... They just make toys in a, in in some ways in my mind. Like that's I, what I, you think, but they. Well, no, I'm I'm not saying that you can't make something good with them, but most of the time when I see 3D printers, it's like, hey, I've made this little bobblehead, or I've made a little boat, or I've made a little this or that, and it's like that's super cool, but it's just I don't get it. So it's really funny. Is one of the conveyors, one of the first conveyors we ever bought at Macrofab? Yeah. Has 3D printed brackets that I built for it. Sure, you've done that, and I've seen a, I've seen people on like Hackaday make little like, you know, this or that that helps. I don't know whatever task that d- they're doing, but I guess in my everyday use, I don't run into things that I would need one for. I'll put it this way: it's it's like why when I started learning how to weld mm-hmm. is once you master or once you have that tool in your tool drawer yeah you start looking at projects different ways and how to solve them because it's a it's an option because now it becomes an option yeah whereas before when i was working on my jeep i'd have to go and say okay now i need to find a bracket or something that i can bolt together and make it work but now i'm like i'm just gonna stick that metal to that metal and call it good yeah okay i got you on that now, 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 here's the thing. The article that was written here, I want to I point out something that I kind of don't really agree with on there. Uh, so basically what they were saying is, is a 3D printer worth it? And the argument was, if you had a 3D printer 
then you could, for much cheaper, you could print little toys and gizmos and widgets that would cost you much more if you bought them at something like Walmart. Uh, and so if you compare the cost difference, then the way the article phrased it or, or kind of presented it was like, you save so much money by having a 3D printer. It's like, but I don't buy that crap at Walmart or anyways. Anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, so it just doesn't that like that is not a reason for it to be good for me. Yeah, exactly. Because it, you know, we don't have kids. So, but like, let's say an action figure. If you can print a really good action figure, yeah. And so to have a printer that can print a really good action figure, you probably would need one of the higher end hobby printers, like a Maker Gear M2, which is like two grand. Yeah. An action figure, let's say, it costs ten bucks at, at Walmart. Sure. So you need to print two. We're, we're probably old because action figures probably cost more, like twenty or thirty dollars. Yeah. So let's now. say it's ten bucks, though. <laughs> yeah, ten bucks. You have to print two hundred action figures just to pay off in terms of just building toys. Yeah. I think I had like four action figures when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. So it, it sort of doesn't make sense. That yeah, I agree there. It's I'll put it this way. It's a tool to help you prototype or rapidly iterate designs. I absolutely agree with that. And in that case, it would be awesome. Like, going back to the amps that I did, if I wanted to test out the way a new knob would look on or the felt front, when you grabbed it. Or felt when I grabbed it, I could print one out, put it on there, and be done. And that would be killer. That I, I, In that sense, absolutely. But in my day-to-day life, I'm not going to spend $2,000 to have a thing that prints out bobbleheads, you know? <laughs> I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. But uh, you do agree with me with the other one. Well, so. sure. Yeah. Sure. I can I can see that. And and, and, and I went to our local uh, makerspace here in Houston just uh, last week. And uh, they, uh, TXRX. TXRX, yeah. Uh, and, and they had a, an ungodly amount of 3D printers there. And all of them were printing... I, if there's any TXRX listeners out there, you guys are awesome. This place is great. But everything that was being printed there was just like crap. You know, it yep. was it was just like uh, great. You printed a a big 3D like version of the letter A. You know, <laughs> great. What are you gonna do with that? Like, and 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 don't get me wrong. Well, like, what, no, what things don't were, have to have a use to be good. Well, what if they were printing their own typesets to go up? Like, you know, how you address on the side of your house. Yeah. They could be printing up a typeset for that. That would be great, but I really doubt that was happening. <laughs> you know, so like that, in other words, like, if you can have 3D printers look like that to me. What if you could have the lettering on the side of your house in Comic Sans? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, maybe I ruffled some feathers with that. 3D printers are cool as hell. They're super cool. I just, I just don't see how it works for me. And another thing, though, is I 3D printed my air filter enclosure for my Jeep. Well, your buddy did. Well, yeah, but I designed it and he 3D printed it. Yeah. So I made something that doesn't exist anywhere. It's all custom. And you pro- you could do it with a, a lathe. You can do this whole thing with a lathe. It would cost a lot more. That's right. Than th- I would actually, I'll put it this way, is because it's pretty big. That thing is like... Eight inches by six and a half inches in diameter. Yeah. And it's a cylinder. That would cost more in material alone on a lathe than it did if you bought the 3D printer is printed on and the material for the 3D printer. That's true. Yeah. I think that was like it I think I got it quoted through some online places just to make it out of like 
you know, ABS plastic. Yeah. There's like three grand. Yeah. And I printed it with like two dollars of material. <laughs> right, right, right. So. And 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 that microfab, I've I've had a couple things printed. I I made a uh, transistor standoff for a customer that yep. needed a specific height of a transistor on a board. Uh, I've made some pin straighteners, uh, and and some a handful of things. So I've used it, uh, and it is useful. But I guess I guess what I, all I'm getting at is like myself personally. Yeah, yeah. I don't see myself owning one. But regardless, we should get so. a nice one at Macrofab. We should get a nice one. Yeah, just so we can. And it's then that, print that, toys all day. Yeah, print long. toys all day. No, it's just one of those like we now have that in our toolbox that we can use. Sure. And because like you've been doing all the conveyorization yep. and all that stuff, and you know, instead of having to buy that ginormous <laughs> aluminum plate that you're attaching a little tiny scanner to, what if you could just make a 3D printed bracket that works? Hey, if it can do that, if it can print a big giant metal like plate. If if it does the same job, great. I'm I'm in, I'm all in. But if it just looks like some plastic gizmo, and if it makes my project look crappy, I don't want to use it. You know. Yeah. So it's got to look pro. Got to look pro. Got to look pro. And so that will wrap up this episode of the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. This was episode fifty six. We were your hosts, Parker Dillon and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Drink a beer. It's National Engineers Week. Woo.